On today's episode of Bill and Frank's Guilt-Free Pleasures, we bring back a familiar guest, and we discuss the dangers of reminiscing. Why the blues are so moody. And we talk about how a night in white satin can lead to your wildest dreams. Here at Bill and Frank's Guilt-Free Pleasures, we adore every song we do, except for the Paul McCartney Christmas song that Frank still hasn't come around to. But other than that, we love the music that we feature. Frank, why are you looking uncertain? Well, I also hate We Built This City on rock and roll. Oh, really? I thought we didn't convince you? No, not at all. Not even close. Wow. Okay. But that's a good segue because Dave Kitchen was on that episode as well. And he's back here again, doing a song that I hate. No, actually, I kind of like this one. Kinda? I Frank, like this what song. the heck? <laughs> Listen, welcome back, Dave Kitchen. Thank you. Thank you. If you had told me two years ago that I'd be doing my 12th episode, I wouldn't have been able to imagine it in my wildest dreams. Oh, well done. Thank you. Thank you. Dave Kitchen brought us today's song, which is Your Wildest Dreams by the Moody Blues. And he said to me, this song is like the ultimate guilt-free pleasure song. It ticks off all the boxes that you're about. And I remember re-listening to this and thinking, this is what we're all about here. Yeah, this is the prototypical song. Quintessential guilt-free pleasure song. It's the penultimate guilt-free pleasure song. <laughs> That's not what that means, friend. <laughs> it is the perfect guilt-free pleasure yeah. song. So thank you, Dave Kitchen. I am excited to talk about Moody Blues, Your Wildest Dreams. The Moody Blues is a band that I just kind of dismissed as this sort of like weird, not quite Grateful Dead, but in the zone of a band that I just wasn't interested in learning about. I had no idea what they were about. I knew Knights in White Satin. That was all I knew. I I knew this song, but I had no idea it was the Moody Blues until we decided to cover it. And then because we're doing this song, I started listening through the Moody Blues catalog I texted Frank and said, hey, I think I bit off more than I could chew when I thought I'd listen to every album by the Moody Blues. They did a lot of albums. Yeah, you had, what, 16, you said? 16 proper albums, seven live albums. There's an EP in there. There's as many compilations as there are albums. And, I mean, the early version of the band is from, like, is it 64, 65? 64, when they started. Insane. And then... The, the main songwriters didn't join until, let's see, if I'm getting this right, they actually were together and then broke up and then reformed in 67. Is that right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And then Justin Hayward joined the band and I forget everybody else in the band. Like for this song, let, let's talk specifically about this song. Justin Hayward, who's the lead, uh, John Lodge plays uh, bass. Peter Mraz, uh, keyboards, Graham Edge, drums and percussion, and Ray Thomas uh, plays the tambourines and vocals. And I am jumping the gun here, but in the video, there's this one little scene of Ray Thomas playing the tambourine, and he is just the happiest looking person in the history of music. And it's just this like one, two second little like throwaway shot. But my goodness, I think the tambourine brings people joy. And in that brief moment in time where he could be in a music video on MTV. (laughs) (laughs) He knows his time has come. Yeah, exactly. This is the perfect moment. Time for the tambourine to shine. I know that Denny Lane was in the early... Yes. Incantation? No, wait. Incarnation. Incarnation. Of the band. We will incantate later, maybe. Yeah, he was only there for two years. And then he joined Wings from 71 to 81. That's right, yeah. 
That's that's my big trivia. I say that's right, like I'm agreeing with you, but I just found that out now when you told me. So the main two songwriters join in 67 with this newly reformed band. Yeah, 66. 67, 66. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And Justin Hayward is also the songwriter for Nights in White Satin, which he wrote when he was 19 years old. Serious? Yeah. That's bonkers. It's a crazy song. That song, yeah. there's something about, I, I don't know how to classify it. I don't know what genre it belongs in. It's operatic, but it's also symphonic. Like it's got the strings in the background and stuff like that. It's not psychedelic, even though it's 67 or yeah. whatever. It, like it just exists. And I think that what you were saying earlier about the Moody Blues just being this band, like I don't know what to do with that song. It's a beautiful song and his voice is haunting in it. But it just exists in this space where I don't know what to do with. And then I, I just never got into the band because I just thought it was all going to sound like that. Yeah, me too. That I felt the same way. And a friend of mine, Steve Freilich, gave me, I don't know if he gave me or he kind of consigned or lended me like about 80 vinyl LPs. Oh, okay. To either keep for him or to keep for myself. We're going to find that out in a few years, I'm sure. But he had a ton of Moody Blues. And certain record collectors rebuy the same album twice because if they play it too much, they buy another one. Oh, so I found okay. multiple copies of the same Moody Blues album. Oh, okay. And I was so overwhelmed. I didn't even bother putting one on because I'm like, there's just too many here. I can't listen to all this. But then you tried. I tried. I did. But I'll tell you, what I learned was they were like one of the first stereo bands. And oh, okay. so their record label that they were on was one of these um, labels that did all the classical music. And so they wanted to feature Moody Blues as a stereo band. And okay. that's how the Nights in White Satin came out. There's this album that has like the seasons on there. I, I wish I had the, the name of the album in front of me. And that Nights in White Satin thing was in the song called Night, but they had Day, Night. And it's all this sort of like concept. Oh, okay. they're, yeah. they're heavy on the concept albums. And it was all about showing what stereo could do. And oh, okay. his complaint was that the Beatles, and they were buddies with the Beatles as well. Mm -hmm. The Beatles didn't know what to do with stereo. They were so obsessed with mono, they'd spend all their time on it and then spend like a, a day making a stereo mix, whereas the Moody Blues were all about the stereo. And I guess that leads into why they're understood as a prog rock band as well, because they got high concepts and the sounds are coming all over the place. But Justin Hayward, deep down, just wants to be a pop songwriter. Yeah. And this is one of the reasons why he thinks... The Moody Blues might not be recognized as one of the great acts. He's pretty um, humble. We talked about this, Kitsch. Yeah. And so he was asked why they weren't super famous or, or put on these top lists. And he's like, well, we were still able to generate hits late into our career. So it wasn't like we were put into a place in time. We actually have this longer career. Mm -hmm. They might not have been like Elton John topping everything, but they were able to create music and go with the times mm -hmm. he even talked about recognizing that split that there, he played a show where a bunch of people walked out it was like a pro oh really it was a protest to his new sound so in the 80s when he started playing the more synth oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah guarded yeah, stuff yeah, yeah. and then uh they were playing a song and then all these all these women walked out at the front of the show they just laughed oh, seriously and uh so he recognizes that his sound is Caused some some riffs with his fans, but he he doesn't care. He's pursuing his musical direction. So so it's fine. like when Dylan went to electric. Yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. <laughs> that's, right. that's when the Moody Blues went synthetic. <laughs> so jumping back a little bit to the formation of the band, their original name wasn't the Moody Blues. What was it? It was the M and B Five. It was named after a brewery in Birmingham. Oh, where they where they came from? I'm guessing. <laughs> Were you made up the M&B 5? No, I'm reading no. it on the interwebs. Oh, oh. Do you think they went with Moody Blues because of the M&B? Yeah, that's exactly it. When they came back together with the, the new lineup, they chose the name Moody Blues because their look was moody. They wore all dark clothes and never smiled on any promo shots or anything like that. And they played blues music. This is probably why I didn't get into them or even open any of those vinyl LPs is because Blues music was always something I just wasn't that interested no, in. No, exactly. So I just thought, oh, I don't want to listen to the blues. I'm sad enough. But then um, I was wrong. But their sound was all over the place in the early days. I was listening to some of their stuff today. And you just put on the Spotify playlist and it plays kind of all over the spectrum. But for whatever reason, it wasn't playing any of their poppy 80s stuff. So when you listen to that old stuff, 
there's a few songs that are very similar to Nights in White Satin. It's kind of got that really produced symphonic sound. And then other songs are bluesy, but then other songs sound like I was saying earlier, they, they sound like they belong on the Austin Powers soundtrack. They kind of write in that 60s. It would be that one James Bond movie where the guy dressed up like Austin Powers, whatever, Her Majesty's Secret Service. Yeah, yeah, kind yeah. Of that yeah, era, yeah. 67, 68. But uh, you can see why later in their career they were okay with going off in a new direction because I don't think they had a sound their entire career. Right, yeah. Because they, yeah, they started one way. They ended up being kind of psychedelic for a while. But somewhere around the 80s, they embraced a synth. Yeah. And I think it starts around the song, The Voice, at least for me, because both Kitchen and I were listening to their stuff. And when we hear certain 80s songs, it suddenly triggers these memories. And this is a big part of why I love this song, is it triggers something. And you remember a time and it takes you to a place, which is what our podcast is all about. Yeah. And the line in the song, when the music plays. Oh, my goodness. And it's just, it's that nostalgia that comes in for an old song. It's fantastic. Yeah, Yeah, 81, I think, was the first of their pop shift. They had an album in 81. I can't remember what it was called, but that was their their first one. And then 86 was the next one. He talks uh, about just being in the 80s in London, too. And what a vibrant scene that was. And it does seem like a really vital time in music when you think of all the acts that came out of there. So just a guy who's open to that, doesn't have that, you know, I feel like the Rolling Stones were like that too, because they embraced that disco era too. Yeah, yeah. They had that like... Uh, they had some horrible disco. They had some huge <laughs> yeah. songs. Yeah. But they were, you know, a couple of bands that, that would refused to get stuck in something and then were open to the new shift. And then it, Some of those legacy acts that you know, make those big shifts and everything. And one of the worst examples of that would be D.D. Ramone from the Ramones released a rap album, which oh, was no. absolutely terrible. But also Neil Young had a, uh, he was really into synth, uh, synth wave stuff in the 80s as well, which really wasn't that well received. <laughs> he got sued by Geffen Records because yeah. he went off in such a different direction that they yeah. saw it as like almost like a breach of contract. <laughs> yeah. I don't. I don't like to think about that, Uncle Neil. So yeah, there's a there's a reason why his greatest hits is called Decade. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't want to go any further. <laughs> if you think about the Moody Blues hanging out with all these young upstart people, new wave movement, and being open to it, and they're in their mid thirties, and I imagine that scene might have looked to them as these sort of weirdos, but they were totally happy to be a part of it. And they worked with that producer who worked with Bowie, Tony... Visconti. Visconti, that's it. So he was given credit for much of this song. And so this is coming in the second or third album of their 80s sort of stuff. This is 86 the album comes out? 86, yeah. Yeah. Holy cow. I can't say that enough because I don't want to swear. This is their second highest charting single after Nights in White Satin. Yeah. And deservedly so. Yeah. It's, it's kind of seen as somewhat, but not really like a, almost a comeback song. Yeah. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Because when was Nights in White Satin? is what, late 60s? This is weird. Uh, there's a story here, and I don't know what the story is, but it was released in 67, but then it was released in 72. In the States. Re-released. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. so it didn't, wasn't released in the, in the States? It's so it was, but it didn't pick up traction. So 67, it came out, but didn't do great. Because they had like a number one hit early, but it wasn't anything like Nights in White Satin. But I think critics understood it as being good, but it didn't really make a mark. But then it did in 72. And at some point there was a movie called Nights in White Satin. Oh, okay, yeah. I don't know if there was a movie really. No, I think you're thinking about that White Knights movie with uh, Gregory Hines and Baryshnikov. Okay, no, this is a... uh, have you ever gone to the video store when you're a kid and you just kind of walk down the aisle? And as you're walking down the aisle, if you're in like the romance action section or romance action, which is a particular type of movie, <laughs> <laughs> there's these movies that came out that you look at each, each time you walk by the covers, it'd be like, oh, Night Eyes, Night Eyes 2. I'm like, oh, gee, these, these, like, what are these movies about? And you're a kid and it's kind of odd. It's like, it's not just people together making, uh, Sweet love on the covers, right? And then I came by one that said Knights in White Satin. And I'm like, what is this? What is this? What is this? And I looked at the cover and flipped it around. I couldn't understand what it was. 
because my dad was like, hey, get over here. <laughs> Don't look at that. We just rent an American tail. So, <laughs> but I remember. Wait, T-A-I-L? <laughs> it was T-A-I-L because it, like, it was a mouse. Oh, that's uh, right. It was a mouse. Come on, right. Kitsch. And I don't know if they even played the Moody Blues in there, but you can't come up with a title like that and not be not, thinking about that song. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The movie, Nights in White Satin, which is a 1987 rated R movie that probably played late on uh, city TV on a Friday night. <laughs> okay. Um, yes, it did. Has songs by the following bands, Animotion, the Moody Blues, and the Thompson Twins. So even their connection, they're firmly in the 80s to be put into that kind of milieu of uh, bands. Yeah. Yeah. Because those w- they would have been synthwave bands as well, right? From, yeah. from the 80s. Yeah. So, I mean, we've we've certainly talked a lot about Nights in White Satin for a podcast on your wildest dreams. The first 32 seconds of this song are shocking for the song any that, era. And the song that comes after it. The opening to this song sounds like the beginning of an Ed Wood movie. Yeah, that's a good call. It is, uh, there's a dreamlike quality, but, but also spooky. Spo- yeah, it's totally, and the, the song is a spooky song. Yeah. They uh they got questions about it. They they thought people they were playing the theremin, which is that yeah. antenna yeah. where you put your hand up to it and yeah. it makes the weird noises. But it was a it was just a guitar passed through a synth, right? But uh, yeah, it has this kind of spooky quality to it. It's like a Halloween song or something, which makes it all the more endearing to me because it sets you up for the tone of the song, which is looking back on something that you lost. So it becomes like a ghost story. And you're asking someone who's not there whether they see you in their wildest dreams. It makes me feel like it'd be something you'd think about in the darkness of the night. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's it's a song of regret and a song of loss about the one that got away. And I have problems with that. With the one that got away? Well, they've all gotten away from me. I guess I'm not very good at knots. But in a relationship with someone and you're writing about the one that got away, isn't that a bit of a slap in the face to the person that you're with. I'm not sure he was with anybody. But he was, he was and is. He's still married to the same woman he married in like either the late 60s or early 70s. But he, this is a song about the one that it's, got away. It is the song about his first love. Yeah. Well, I, I was, I was wondering because when they push him in the interviews, they said, are you writing about someone particular? And he's like, I'm not going to say yes. <laughs> it is. And he called it a fantastic, amazing, and disturbing journey. Yeah. yeah. And, and the he... disturbing part is he talks about you just, you upset the equilibrium. Yeah. Like things settle, you go in directions, and then to try and go back, it just screws up the whole natural order of things. Can you imagine being that person? You're, you're with someone, you're with a musician, and he or she writes a song about someone that they used to be with and puts it on her album. Has that ever happened to any of us in this room? <laughs> oh, Frank, you, that her album, like, wait a second. <laughs> it is all good if the person who wrote a song about an idiot who dumped her, if he, she wrote a song on her album about him <laughs> because he got away, but if she got back together with him because he's no longer a stupid idiot and they got married and then he started a podcast with Frank, then it all it all works out. We're back to equilibrium. See, then then it works out. Then it's okay. But if, you know. Yeah, that's a deep cut. So what Frank's referring to is my, uh, my wife, Ashley, wrote a song about me in 2007 and released it on her album. And it was called You're Not Here. And that was about me. But uh, is it ironic that I'm now here? I think so. Yeah. Or it's just pure dumb luck that I was able to win her back. Something like that. Yeah. But in Justin Hayward's case, he is speaking about someone in particular. Yeah. And it sounds like he actually did seek her out. The way that those interviews went, because there's another one of Song Facts where he said, I recommend 
not doing this. And so I think he did actually yeah. look for the person and it mimics the sort of video in some ways that yeah. he actually did try to find her and he blamed it on the ego of a songwriter oh. that it was about him trying to find it for the sake of his song. But I don't know what went down. Yeah. But that he might have caused some hurt. Strife in his marriage. Or just in or her hers. life. Or yeah. hers, yeah. Yeah, true, true, Whatever true. that is. Yeah. And he's coming in as a established musician with yeah. fame and all that stuff. And I don't know. You never know how yeah. that plays out. But you're coming in with some power in that situation, yeah. too. Also, I'm sorry about taking the uh, the pot shot at you there, Bill. It was, I didn't feel it. It was pretty good. No, no offense taken. Before we jump into this, we have a general sort of format where we talk about the band, talk about the song, but we also work through the lyrics. But in terms of this song, he's quite a songwriter in terms of he doesn't he doesn't repeat phrases in this song too much. There's some hints back to things that he's saying, but he says something new each time. Mm-hmm. And it, there's a lot of words, but he's doing something new almost in each verse. And even when the chorus comes out, he's changing things. I love what he does as a songwriter. Yeah. It's incredible. All right, I'm going to read the first verse for you. Once upon a time, once when you were mine, I remember skies reflected in your eyes. Now, I'm just going to jump in because Genius.com tells me this is chorus one, but I'm not sure there's really a chorus. I'm just going to keep going. Yeah. I wonder where you are. I wonder if you think about me. Once upon a time in your wildest dreams. Once upon a time, once when you were mine, I remember skies reflected in your eyes. I wonder where you are. I wonder if you think about me. Once upon a time in your wildest dreams. So to open a song with that line, Once Upon a Time. I like that. It's mm-hmm. a storybook, right? Does it make you think Princess Bride? Yeah, absolutely. I like it because it's he's telling a story and he opens it like a story, almost like a fairy tale, right? And he's, I mean, you, you read the old fairy tales that all often have like horror movie endings and stuff like that. But, you know, Disney sort of sanitized them and, 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 and all of that other sort of fun stuff. He's writing it kind of like a fairy tale. No, he he um, opens a bunch of stanzas with once. Yeah. Right? Because it's once upon a time, and then once the world was new, and then once beneath the stars, and then back to once upon a time again. So yeah. it's definitely, he's got his memory locked in that he keeps going back to in this song. Yeah, I love it. I, I, I just kept underlining things, but I could underline the whole song. But talking about skies reflecting in eyes is such a yeah. nice, easy rhyme. Yeah, but immediately calls back to like young love that just being uh, not just young love, but just being a youth and everything's new. This is just I guess I'm jumping into that's later, isn't it? But everything is just how do we say it? It's just surrounded with this glow. Yeah. The openness of the sky, too, is always that thing of like your life is in front of you and all that as a young person. Wide-eyed wonder and all this other sort of... And then it shifts to him wondering where she is. Yeah. And there is that moment of like, if you were to go there, to wonder about these things. And and, I mean, he says it's not healthy to wonder about it, despite the fact that he made a lot of money (laughs) on writing about this, this and another song. To your point earlier, Frank, about this being a bad idea, he kind of agrees with you. Let's keep going through the song just because I want to talk through it. I hope we don't play the whole song because that's probably... Oh, we might get some feedback. But verse 2 repeats, as Kitchen said, you had the once upon a time, now the once comes back. Once the world was new, our bodies felt the morning dew that greets the brand new day. We couldn't tear ourselves away. I wonder if you care. I wonder if you still remember once upon a time in your wildest dreams. Once the world was new, our bodies felt the morning dew that reached the brand new day. We couldn't tear ourselves away. I wonder if you care. 
I have a note written here. So the first two lines, once the world was new, our bodies felt the morning dew. The way that it's sung, I just have morning dew dot 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 awk for awkward. Because the way that they sing it is it's there's too many syllables in there. And they kind of smash through morning and they barely even pronounce do. But you want to rhyme new with do. But it, it works. But it's awkward. I thought you would like that as uh, as English teachers. It's all the uh, the metaphors of youth again, right? The brand new day, the morning, right? It's like open skies, morning, brand new day, all these things that hint at openness couldn't tear themselves away either, you know? It, and he balances it. He starts with this picture of things and then his wondering. Here, Once this was happening, now I wonder about you. Yeah, what's the next chapter in this story if it's continuing, right? I wonder if you care. I wonder if you still remember. Yeah. And, you know, if it's framed as a guy who's in a marital relationship, he's happy, he's got kids, but his mind is going back in time where it's like, is this healthy? Is this... This is just part of life, though, too, looking back on all these things and what could have been and where someone is. He doesn't know. There's a line that comes later and it talks about um, the universe. It says, once beneath the stars, the universe was ours. Again, that open space. Mm-hmm. It says, love was all we knew. And it kind of reminds me of, um, especially as like a high school teacher, you see kids in relationships and stuff. And they're not thinking about whether that person's going to be a good mother or a father to their children or whether that person's going to be able to help contribute toward a mortgage or anything like that. Like their love is really like, it's, it's a very teenage notion yeah. of love. It's just like... Uh, it's me, it's this other person, we're in love, and that's all the criteria we need. You know, whereas when you get older, it gets a bit more complicated, and you look for other things to be attracted to and things. Oh, yeah. But, you know, it's just that youthful kind of love that he's, maybe he's he's gone his, his own path. He's a singer and done very well, but, like, you know, all the complexities of being an adult, and he, if he looks back on that, it's just, not only was it a simpler time, but even love as a concept was simpler then, too. You think back then... You hit the infatuation mode, which is like the meanest thing to say to a teenager who's in love. (laughs) But what love looks like is you just get so fixated on someone and you fill in every gap that you don't know about the person. And you know nothing about the person, but it's just this glow of love to you that fills everything. So you don't know anything about the person, but just that you want to be with that person. You want to be with them all the time. And when you talk to each other, there's that sort of like hypnotized moment and glow in your eyes as you speak to each other and everything can be right. But there's all these things you don't know. It's a lot. It is a lot. There's a lot that I don't know. (laughs) I want to go to your definition of song. What is it again? Well, music plus lyrics equals song. So that takes us to the bridge, to quote our main man, James Brown. (laughs) I was thinking uh, Justin Timberlake, take us to the bridge. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. We can go with that, too. (laughs) And when the music plays and when the words are touched with sorrow. So it begins with the music and the words that are touched with sorrow, which is so perfect. It's a beautiful line. Oh, because of the songs that we're all about. Right. And then he says, when the music plays, I hear the sound I had to follow once upon a time. So when you hear the songs that we feature on our podcast, ideally, it will trigger this sort of crazy time machine, like a Doctor Who thing where you suddenly just go back and you're there and you're feeling it. And hopefully you're feeling all those feels without the sort of regret that can come with it, but more being at peace and giving grace to yourself for being human. Yeah. There's also that that mental connection you have with music too, where you can hear a song and be instantly taken back to yeah. some place. And I think that's what's happening here. That this this bridge to me speaks the loudest of all the the verses because it's that. And I think of my own experiences about albums that come on. You know, there's a Tracy Chapman song, and when I hear it, I'm in Algonquin Park because that was the one tape we had in the car on that trip oh, back yeah, in the yeah. 90s, right? Like, and things like that. But and when, when he says, I hear the sound I had to follow. Yeah. It's almost like you have no choice. This is a subliminal thing that's happening. You've made these connections way back yeah. in the day. And when that song comes on, you had no choice. You're going back to that place.
this bridge is so good they do it twice. There's two bridges yeah. in this like sort of map of the song. Yeah. So it takes us to that verse three that we've talked about. I wonder if you know, I wonder if you think about it and all that. They ask those questions. And then before second bridge is the ad-libbed interlude <laughs> with a ooh. Yeah, oh, yeah. That is, I'm, forget the category. I'm just going to say it now. Ah, uh, that part for me brings me the purest joy. Yeah. Just the ahs is like, oh, this is where I want to be. Thank you, Moody Blues. Thank you. But it goes into after those, like after that, uh, and goes on like that for a while. It jumps back into that bridge. But leading into that bridge again, there's this little drum roll. I have at the end when the music plays, arrow drums, dot, 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 awk for awkward. Because the drums sound a little bit awkward, but it it works. Okay. But listen to it. It, it has that little, it's staccato or it's out of time or something i don't know i don't know music terms i don't know things guys but this is how i feel that i think that it feels i wonder if the drummer bassist and all those other guys are like okay they've been doing synths and running his guitar through things and this tony guy's taking all our glory and the tambourine players trying to stack things. It's just, it's like, get me in, get me in. Maybe that's what you're hearing there. Yeah, maybe. I have bass breakdown written down halfway through the second bridge. Like, there's something that goes on with a bass yeah. that's so pleasing. But it might be, well, it must be a synth bass. It sounds so good because it can only sound so good when a bass combines with a piano. No, it's a, it's a proper bass. It says... Unreal. So verse four does a bit of repeating, but just what makes it so fun is he still can't just repeat it. He needs to change a few things. So he says, once upon a time, once when you were mine. So this is just like verse one. I remember skies mirrored in your eyes, which is just different from reflected, which yeah. is just something he does out of pure joy and then repeats i wonder where you are i wonder if you think about me once upon a time in your wildest dreams and then he repeats till he hits the best bass he can do in your wildest dreams oh yeah exactly. oh yeah, yeah. oh so good and then we just have a nice sort of fade, out. fade out with the oh yeah and in the video, he's talking directly to her because she's yeah. in the audience at that point. Yeah. And he's saying it. It's almost like he breaks into conversation. He does. Yeah. And he sees her. In your wildest dreams. In your wildest dreams. In your wildest dreams. And I think we need to talk about that video. The video, yeah. The video won an award for like the Billboard uh, Music Video of the Year. And yeah. I remember mm -hmm. thinking, oh, this is what they give to like established bands. I was thinking about that yesterday before we watched the video. And I got to say, that video is wicked. It's a little all over the place. Yeah, it's so good. So those opening notes where it's like the Ed Wood movie, it looks like it's like this post-apocalyptic landscape it's the cover of the album the other okay, side of life what, so it's okay. yeah, and it makes sense now when i see the album cover i'm like oh that's kind of a weird 80s thing but then when i saw the beginning of the video i'm like oh this makes sense this is all the sort of scattered memories oh. but in this sort of wasteland yeah it might represent his brain yeah his mind brain sounds so bougie <laughs> i'd say biological oh <laughs> same thing bougie sure I think uh, I'm going to step on my uh, mixtape a little bit, but I think there was also something going on this time in the 80s where you've got a generation of stars from the 60s who have now reached middle age. There's a lot of songs about reflection. 
And the one that comes to mind is Boys of Summer by Don Henley. Yeah. That song and this song to me are kind of in a parallel universe just because yep. they're both talking. So, and I'm, I often think about, you know, the people making the decisions, probably record executives in their 40s that are also remembering fonder times, especially with the whole hippie thing where there was the promise of something great, you know, and then you realize like it was way more fringe than we think it is. Yeah. And all that stuff. And then the dream died. I remember reading Fear and Loathing in, in Las Vegas. And the guy's like, we blew it. Like, we, we had it and it's over and it's done. <laughs> right. So there's that. And just the theme of getting older on itself. But then there's the whole kind of hit dead hippie thing. Yeah. But now we got to make peace with where we are now. And in a way, the band's doing that by embracing the sound and having the video and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you kind of think back, like, when the 60s thing ended, uh, December 31st, 1969. <laughs> the introduction. It died post. in Altamont, Frank. <laughs> it did. And when that Hell's Angel stabbed the guy right in front of Mick Jagger, it all died. <laughs> It was a beautiful six-month 60s that they yeah. had between Woodstock and Altman. I yeah. love holding those two together. I always talk to my class about Woodstock. I always bring up Altman. And then they, I don't know why I keep bringing it. I bring it up all the time. It's Altman is this thing. It's like, it's the other side. It's like, yeah. hey, why don't we pay the Hells Angels to do security? What could go wrong? Could Easy go wrong. riders, free love, free living. And then the look on Mick Jagger's face, just the bafflement. It's like, yeah. Yeah. This is what it is. Okay, so the, we got to talk more through this video. Yeah. Okay, back to that opening. You have that wasteland, and then you sort of go to this apartment. Yeah, it looks like it's coming through an alley and then going up the apartment, and yeah. you look inside the apartment, and the Moody Blues are there. Right. Well, and she's, oh, no, sorry. She there? she's there. She's looking out the window, and she's thinking back, right? So it's yeah. sort of in his fantasy of – the person he lost, the girl, is thinking back fondly on him. I don't know if it coincides directly with the lyrics, but it's, I wonder where you are. I wonder if you're thinking of me. That's kind of what it's representing in the video. Oh, there it is. I thought we'd get away from it. Your no. trip to New Zealand, we wouldn't hear resemble again. No. If anything, it's emboldened my representativeness. I was hoping maybe it's the penultimate time you'll use it. <laughs> we got one more. She's married. He doesn't seem like a terrible guy, but he looks no. like a guy who wouldn't be in a rock and roll band. No. And she's got two kids. Yeah. But she doesn't seem like she's happy to have them. But in that moment. Yeah. Let's be fair to her. When she's looking at the album? Or is that, yeah. that comes later? Well, yeah. Right? I think, well, it all kind of blends together for me, but the kids are kind of fighting with each other. And right. she's in her own world. There's a moment where she looks at the album and then you can tell she makes the decision. And she's going to go see this band. That's right. Yeah. And the husband and the kids are in the background. Yeah. Because she keeps going back in time to when they were together. And it, it, it's that early 60s thing. Mm -hmm. Apparently in the video, they thought they could play the earlier versions <laughs> themselves. Yeah. They had to tell them, you're too old. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he said I, that he's like, I thought we looked pretty good for being 40. Yeah. I read something that said they used uh, stand-ins to play the younger versions of themselves. But the most 80s thing is having 40-year-olds play teenagers. Oh, yeah, totally. Really. But they wouldn't <laughs> really. have had to get the tambourine player to shave off his mustache. Yeah. Or, yeah. <laughs> and when you see the band, you're like, there's no way. They look so much like oh they're, they're dads right yeah. at a barbecue yeah. totally. with his labat blue in his hand yeah. that's just that's what i'm seeing there they yeah. look like kokomo era beach boys yeah yeah, yeah. That, especially the lead singer oh it's so perfect that they all that haircut oh yeah. it's great it's yeah. just it, it brings me back memories of mr mr as well so mr <laughs> mr had no reason to do that because he was young yeah <laughs> but there's like flashbacks to the past and to the present but there's a moment in the video, which is what won the video for me, where there was this dance routine. Yes. But they don't just do a dance routine. They, like, take it to the next level. And there's a couple guys in there who dance more aggressively than John Travolta did in Sylvester Stallone's Staying Alive. That's a deep cut. Yeah. And if you watch Sylvester Stallone's, <laughs> I want to call it that because he directed it. Yeah, yeah. Staying Alive, the sequel to Saturday Night Fever. They're all like fight scene dances because oh. he just done Rocky and possibly Rocky too. So it's just like in Rambo. And he just 
has everything is like this conflict thing. Yeah. And so this is not quite it, but the dancers take it so seriously. Yeah. And they dance so aggressively. Aggressively that I thought they're gonna knock her out when she's walking through them. She's walking through with a smile on her face. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the thing that triggers her memory. Because there's a shot of her as a young person on the street, and then it transitions from black and white to, to the to, modern to day. Yeah, yeah. But I, I don't quite get what was going on. I get what it does for her, but yeah. why was it happening in the first yeah. place? And then it happens again in the 80s because they're dancing in front of a billboard. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And the type of dancing they're doing is dancing that I hadn't seen in an 80s video. I'm used to seeing them in like 90, like 90s videos, just... The way that it's done felt like Britney Spears era, like that yeah, sort of okay. dance routine. Yeah. I have to bring in a connection. It's not another music video, but the dance scene during the parade in Ferris, Ferris Bueller's, Bueller's Day, Day Off, Off, which is equally inexplicable. Because yeah. it's not happening in the float or like yeah. in the parade. It's just a group of people yeah. off to the side and it's the same kind of dancing. So I don't know if that's an homage or it's just right. that it's was the style at the time or Really whatever. the genesis of the flash mob. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Question for you. Is the dancing in Your Wildest Dreams the best or the dancing in McDonald's during Mac and Me? Oh, man. <laughs> because that was an incredible dancing. Yeah, yeah. That's true, too. There was more professionalism in the... Wildest dreams, dreams, yeah. Then what? Then the forty dollar <laughs> budget of that entire movie. <laughs> it was something I can't recommend it to listeners, but you can find it on any Conan O'Brien. Yeah, clip. anything with Paul Rudd and Conan. <laughs> yeah, O'Brien. that's true. There's a scene in the video as well where it's the Moody Blues, and they're in this like Andy Warhol type. I love it party in in an apartment and the lead singer uh justin hayward is there and he's all depressed and he's looking out the window wondering right and it's just this weirdo party that's going on i think i have a theory are they making fun of the beatles in that because they've got the the guru guy right yeah Yeah. so it's almost like the george harrison is with the the guy ringo Starr is just getting all the girls because he's the drummer yeah you know like (laughs) And I, I just couldn't help but feel that that might have been a Beatles play. And there's a guy with the circle dark glasses that's playing the record for her. Yeah. And it, I don't know if that's a John Lennon cut or whatever. Oh, like, but right. they, there's yeah. enough going on there. And they knew the Beatles. Yeah. They're buddies with them. I mean, the one guy left to join Wings, right? Mm-hmm. So there's enough going on there that it's that it's better than it even seems. Like, I yeah. think it really did deserve the award, although I really should see what else was released that year because it was a crazy time for music videos. Yeah. And to give it to, like, a band from the 60s, it yeah. does really feel corporate. Yeah. 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 The uh, video has some connections to Brian Adams' Heaven. Yes. Because there's the woman in the audience. Yeah. He sees her. He can't reach her. At yeah. the end of Brian Adams, he can't yeah. get to her. In the end of this one, for some reason... Justin Hayward's security needs to protect him from all the crazy mob of fans in the hallway that no one is in except this poor woman and a bunch of people who don't seem to care. And he's like, yeah, sorry. Sorry, I can't see you. I'm like, did you just sing about wondering what's going on? And then you give that. just like, "Uh." yeah. And the people in my employ have ultimate power over me in this moment. I can't can't dissuade them from this at all. Does he have Liam Neeson uh, like ushering him out like in (laughs) Taken? You're about to be taken. That's my worst Liam Neeson impersonation. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Love the video. Okay, uh, categories? Yeah. I'm struggling with this. One of the main reasons is we're two years into this, over 100 episodes, and we talk about Hallmark movies. I think I've brought it up before, but I think I might have never watched a Hallmark movie. No, I never have. And I have. Dave Kitchen has. Yeah. yeah. And so you always bring a real Hallmark movie and then mine start to slowly sound more like a movie from the 80s. <laughs> and I can't help but talk about this as though it was Back to the Future. But I want this to be a Hallmark movie that does time travel, but it has to be combined with... A DeLorean and... Uh... No, Hallmark Elements. <laughs> oh. Not a DeLorean, but like maybe a, a farmer... Is that, a, is that a thing? And Kitsch, you got to help us with this. The whole general, thing. the general plot is is the the details are always different in the setting, but the general plot is people have gone off to try things, 
and and then come back and found that the thing that they needed was always there. Oh man, this this song is the perfect song. But no, because he says this is the wrong way to go. Yeah. Oh. So we've got this it's, is the anti. We got to separate the real story from the song. If we just take it on the song, then it's a complete Hallmark movie. But if we if we let his narration of his real life events creep in, then it's a cautionary tale. Yeah. Right. But the Hallmark movie is never a cautionary tale. It's always that, right? So it's somebody goes off to the big city to try it as a CEO or somebody does this, somebody does that, but then they're forced to go back home for some reason and uh, and everything that they needed, the person, the career, the the sense of family, whatever has always been there. So that is right in this song's alleyway. And this is the destructive nature of pop music for me as a lover of pop music is that these songs all say things that are probably psychologically unhealthy, which is oh, yeah, like very much so. Th- you know what? The one that you loved in grade eight—that's the one you got to get back to. It's like no, right? She's selling shrooms in BC. <laughs> <laughs> She's trapped in the mud and Burning Man right now. <laughs> it's not going to be okay for her. And I need to go to Burning Man through the mud, like in Saving Private Ryan, <laughs> to yeah. save her. And then you can carry her out like the bodyguard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's right. See, that's, listen to your song. Listen to your heart song, Bill. That's Go worst. to Burning Man. Yeah, it's the worst. But you listen to these songs and they tell you about like, oh, the first thing you felt, that was the real thing, which is totally not what your therapist is telling you. It was like, no, no, this is a product of a lot of bad things. We need to clean that out. You know what? A better decision is to be with that person you've you know, you've thought about and there's all these elements that make love happen is true and not the lie from, you know, the first half of your life. Because we're all in our 40s. There's this big thing, this guy Richard Rohr that we talk about, talks about learning to live the second half of your life. That's the big part of your life, the second half. But pop music is all about what happened when you were 16. That's real. Oh, my goodness. I still love it, though. Well, yeah, it gives me hope. For my second half. There's always the danger, too. He's got that line, I wonder if you're still thinking about me. And it's it's the, I don't want you, but I want you to want me yeah. factor in this, too, which is a destructive thing as well. It's just the worst. And then once you find out she's thinking about you, then you can just toss her aside. Exactly. And that is the worst thing. <laughs> I felt like that's been done to me before. I yeah. really wanted it to happen, though. <laughs> Every episode we talk about Michael Bolton covering this, I can't see it. No, no. No. I could see him trying, but this is too, I think with him, he needs, he needs a Michael Bolton moment in every song. Yeah. This is too mellifluous. Like it's just too subtle and too beautiful. And he would overpower. There is nothing subtle about that word that you just used. I have no (laughs) idea what that means. Like that is... (laughs) It's a great M- word. Malif- mellifluous? Mellifluous. Look, I don't know what it means either, Frank. I just <laughs> thought it would be cool word. to say on a podcast, okay? <laughs> I feel like you could let Justin Hayward sing this and then like card in, like you would card in, say, Hannibal Lecter, <laughs> okay? Michael Bolton, with his hair shooting out of that mask and just open it up for the bridge transition. Oh, for the... Uh, <laughs> and immediately... You have to see. You have to pull him away before he destroys anything. Yeah. Right, right. And uh, I think that's how we can get Bolton into this. Yeah. So uh, Justin Hayward, if you're listening, and Michael Bolton, if you want to do a duet, uh, the Winchester's open. Yeah. The acoustics are tricky, but we can fix it in post production. Yeah. We put towels on the walls for our soundproofing. So. Do you want to go to mixtape? Yeah. Okay. Give that a roll. Guess first. Okay. I feel like when you're on 12 times, it's almost like you're uh, a permanent guest, but you get to go first. All right. Thank you. And uh, for the record, we have it recorded that Bill said permanent guest. Okay. Uh, So I went with a theme. So sometimes I go theme. Sometimes I go just for songs in the acoustic or sonic, you know, neighborhood of the song. But I feel like I've... Oh, and then I also go for guilt-free pleasure. Yeah, I feel that the Venn diagram is one circle oh, okay. on this one. I really okay, feel yeah. like I hit it. 
because I'm going on the theme of reminiscing and aging and looking back. So I got Glory Days by Bruce Springsteen. I got Let the Good Times Roll by The Cars. Also a uh, previous song on this podcast, Not in Love by 10CC. I got Jack and Diane by John Mellencamp. I got Boys (laughs) of Summer by Don Henley and Everywhere by Fleetwood Mac. Oh, nice. That's really good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And Everywhere brings me to those dreams. Oh, my goodness. (sighs) All right, Frank, you grabbed your your (laughs) notebook, held it up, and you moved in such a way that told me you had to go next i'm excited to get six with the right pick me so this song has a sequel song yes to it yes uh, we haven't talked about it but yeah i know you're out there somewhere which carries on with the the themes of this song on their next album great so i went with songs that also have sequels oh nice did you put a know you're out there somewhere on it no Oh my goodness! Well, Big it, miss. It's, no, no, no. These are songs. So I'm doing because this song is the first song, and right. it has a sequel song to it, right? Right. I'll put. So it, these okay. these songs that I'm I'm putting on all have sequel songs. Okay. Oh, awesome. Okay. So I will start it off with "Peggy Sue" by Buddy Holly. Okay. And he did uh, "Peggy Sue Got Married," which was released uh, after he uh, passed away. We Fell in Love in October by Girl in Red, and uh, that was in uh, 2018, I think, and then she had a song afterwards, uh, October Passed Me By. Space Oddity by David Bowie, and the sequel to that is Major Tom, I'm Coming Home by Peter Schilling. Peter Schilling? Yeah. Wow. He wrote it. Oh, wait. He did the sequel to He the- did the sequel, yeah. Only the Lonely by Roy Orbison, and the sequel to that one was Lonely No More by The Traveling Wilburys. Oh, okay. Jesse by Joshua Cadison. That's the first song on on the album, Painted Sky Serenade. She shows up again in the last song on the album called Georgia Rain. Oh. And then we're going to close it all off with Friday by Rebecca Black. A couple years later, she released a song called Saturday. Oh, that was is equally bad. It was worse in some ways because it didn't even have the viral factor. Yeah. But apparently she's actually she's she coming back. An album legit. She's coming back. She's legit. Yeah. yeah. I went with dreamy 80s songs. Okay. So I know I talked about the Princess Bride storybook story, but I'm not sure it's going to fit. So I just got to let it go mm-hmm. to quote another song. So I have Frozen. Been, yes. Okay. That's that's the one. So Never Ending Story. Oh. Because that also starts in the same sort of fade in yeah, and then yeah. it does its thing. I have Running Up That Hill by Kate Bush Mm -hmm. because it feels like a dream. Yeah. It's a little more like punchier. Yeah, it's more aggressive, but that's a great song. Yeah. Next up, another great song that fits really well into this, I feel, Let My Love Open the Door, Pete Townsend. Oh, nice. Because it has this sort of light start. Also, Pete Townsend is from a band that was big in the 60s. Yep. Yeah. And he was able to parlay it into the 80s. I don't know if I used parlay right. Next is Goonies Are Good Enough by Cindy Lauper <laughs> because I want to end it with Cindy Lauper. And that's a dream to me. Nice. There's my mixtape. That's fantastic. Once beneath the stars, the universe was ours. Love was only. Yeah, we, we kind of talked a, a little bit about it, but like, what part of the song do you really like? What resonates with you? What brings you joy? Oh. There's my part. The Oz, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Thanks for diminishing that. (laughs) Kitch, do you have a part? I think it's when he says, I wonder if you're um, thinking of me and the way he raises his voice. Yeah. I guess that's the chorus, right? And uh, although the bridge for me is is the real killer that, that, you know, when, when the music plays is what this song to me is all about. Yeah, I, I agree with you there with the bridge. I like that uh, those lines when the music plays, when the words are touched with sorrow. They just it paints this like almost desperate picture, and it, I just I just love the the feel of it. Think about that sorrow, and sometimes you think about the the way all your awkward moments accrue, and you're if you really sat back and think about it, you wonder how you ever 
get to a point of confidence ever in your life. But you you do. Somehow you overcome it and you can look back on it in a nostalgic way, not in a gut-wrenching, embarrassing way. And it just becomes part of your life. I got a question. Have you ever had that moment where you've looked back on your life and done this sort of like, oh, I wonder what's going on with this person or I wonder. Yeah. Or you try to look for the LinkedIn profile or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) And I think there is something about the importance of leaving something as it is that someone's gone off into their own world. Yeah. And you're in your own world and it's good. Well, there's a point of letting go, right? Yeah. Like, and you can't hold on to these things forever because it's just so unhealthy. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think that's part of the, those mixtape that you put together, like uh, Glory Days and, and stuff like that. Like, that's just so unhealthy. Like, I can sit here and talk about the time that I went four for four from behind the arc in grade nine basketball, but I'm not going to bring that up again because I've grown past that. Although... I was leading scorer of the game, and I only played eight minutes. So, I mean. (laughs) Did I tell you about the time I won the Bible memory trophy two years in a row? (laughs) For the, like, the. uh, You told me about the blue cat. (laughs) Yeah, and I also wrote the blue cat. There's a lot of big victories for me in those awkward years and uh, the Bible memory uh, competitions. I just um, cleaned things up. Turned out everyone else who went there didn't care. (laughs) But I won. Yeah. Kitch, once again, bringing a big song to the table, discussing with us. So thanks for coming 12 times. And I have satellite radio now. So now not only do I get more of these kinds of songs, but I know who sings them. (laughs) And I'll be able to bring you even more. Yeah, that's fantastic. Assuming you get invited back. (laughs) (laughs) I'm on the bubble. Yeah. You know what? Even though I say that, it is kind of ironic because we talk about all this reminiscing and stuff like that. But the true victory is never needing a song like this in the first place. Yeah. But you have a podcast like us in the first place, or the last place, and we're glad you're here. And dear listener, when the music plays and you hear the sounds you have to follow, once upon a time, we hope that you stick with Bill and Frank's guilt-free pleasures. In all of your wildest dreams. Let's set the stage for this scene here, just because this is a experimental thing. I have a uh, lantern with a tea light in it. I have matches. I broke the match and nearly burned my finger. <laughs> Why are you holding it right where the flame yeah, is? Just... I'm lighting a match. And so I'm lighting a match. Are you now? <laughs> I'm lighting a match. Oh, the smells of the wood of the match. Just light it with the thing. I want there to be ambiance. It's still lit. Now I will turn off the lights. The stage is set. The light is in the lantern. I want you to... To close your eyes, go back in time to that early love, maybe your first love. Frank, you opened a can. Let's try this again. I can't believe it. I worked really hard on this idea. The lantern is lit. I want you to think about a time long ago, maybe back to your first love. Alyssa Milano. Okay. It, maybe it, I was hoping it would be someone real that you have maybe in your school or your community group. 
So not Jessica Rabbit. <laughs> you're, you're coming back in time. I want you to close your eyes and think about it. Go back to that early experience where you were totally in love. And if you're there, is there anything you would do differently? And even if you tried, it's still not going to work out because I didn't think through what I was going to say. <laughs> 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 <laughs>